Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Joining me on the show today are two executives from Capital Square, a leading provider of tax-advantaged real estate solutions. Whit Huffman is Chief Investment Officer, and James Brunger is EVP Head of Sales and Distribution. Whit and James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Yeah, really appreciate it, Jimmy. Thank you. Yeah, great to have both of you gentlemen on. Uh, James, you just joined me earlier this month for our OZ Pitch Day event, which was uh, which was pretty successful. And I know you guys are, are still going through some follow-ups there, and hopefully some good things come out of that for you. So let's start off today with uh, talking about OZ investment trends. What trends are, are the two of you seeing generally in Opportunity Zone investments? I'll start on that one, Jimmy. And yeah, thank you again for the Pitch Day. I mean, you do a tremendous job on that, a lot of success. I hope the investors, it seems like the investors have really been engaged, so appreciate the opportunity there. On the trends that we're seeing, uh, this sounds kind of odd, but this is probably the first year uh, since the Opportunity Zones were created and introduced in 2017 as part of the Tax and Jobs Act. This is the first year where I feel like people actually know what we're talking about. <laughs> so I want to say Opportunity Zones are starting to really kind of take notice of the benefits associated with investing in them from an investor perspective are really being paid attention to and highlighted. And then I've also seen a number of articles talking about the benefits to the actual opportunity zones themselves with a lot of capital going into these undercapitalized communities in the form of, obviously, in our case, real estate developments. So specifically, I, I think the trend line is really positive that the, the programs are finally getting their due and notoriety. Uh, and it's not just about tax, but it's actually about what they're creating in the zones as well. Uh, Whit, maybe anything about the real estate that you're seeing in the Opportunity Zones? Yeah, so we saw a lot of hospitality investment pre-COVID going to Opportunity Zones, and especially in some places that would make a lot of sense, like in Florida and some more resort-driven geographies. I think today's investment trend line really skews heavily towards multifamily. Given the post-COVID world that we live in and the uncertainty around office, it doesn't take too much imagination to see that office might be a, a scary investment to make when you're looking at a, out over a 10-year timeline and horizon. Hospitality has certainly taken its lumps, but we're actually starting to see some investment in hospitality-driven opportunity zones, specifically in Florida, Miami, places like that, that pretty resilient on a relative basis during the pandemic, seeing almost no activity outside of those core hospitality markets. But multifamily continues to be the flavor of the day, and I think it will continue to be certainly for the next year or two. Good. Well, I want to talk more about that and, and asset classes and, and opportunity zones in a minute. But before we go on, I want to zoom out and get the bigger picture about Capital Square. Can you tell us a little bit about what Capital Square is and the types of products that you offer? Yeah. So Capital Square, we're a tax advantage real estate sponsor. We're based and headquartered in Richmond, Virginia. We have about $3.2 billion in total assets under management. Really focus the first eight years or so of the company on uh, Delaware Statutory Trust for 1031 exchanges. So a lot of our programs there, over 80 programs in DSPs, 
we're the second largest sponsor now of DSP programs for 1031 Exchange. From that basis, you know, with our, our focus and where we're geographically focused, and I'll let Witt talk a little bit more about that. We're really focused in Southeast markets, mainly multifamily. That's core of what we do, but we do have experience across all asset types on a national scale. We see a lot of, of different things, a variety of different markets. But very successful in tax advantage real estate, opportunity zones. We're on our sixth fund. We have our own in-house development company, and we do a variety of different developments, but most of it focused on multifamily. Really, OZ's kind of just played right to our strengths, being tax advantage real estate sponsor, and then right to our development strengths as well. So uh, thrilled that it came about as legislation, and it's really been a, a great and growing part of our business. Whit, you want to add anything to that about Capital Square? Yeah, and I think you, you really hit the nail on the head, James. Historically, we've been predominantly a Delaware statutory trust sponsor. I joined the firm in 2018 from an institutional owner and private equity fund manager. And our core competency was urban infill mixed-use development. So I joined Capital Square. Tax Cuts and Jobs Act had been passed. Leaning into the development was really a no-brainer for us. I came with some development experience. The key question was, how do we build out that vertical? We were fortunate enough to find Adam Stiefel, who had built a very successful real estate company headquartered in Washington, D.C. We were able to get him on board in a few initial projects. But like many things, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act really was a natural parlay off of the Delaware Statutory Trust business, just like our private non-traded REIT is really a good play off of the DST as well. And we're able to leverage that deep experience investing in the Southeast and bring it to the development side of the business. And it's a part of our business that's incredibly fast growing. It's one that they're very excited about. And we're already on our six opportunity zone fund. And we're actually delivering our first residential units here next month on what we call OZ Fund One. Good. And I want to ask you more about those particular funds and the projects that you're investing in a little bit later in the episode. But uh, yeah, yeah, and you're absolutely right. There is a lot of overlap between those different types of tax-advantaged real estate investment wrappers, whether it's a a REIT or a DST or an Opportunity Zone, definitely a lot of overlap there. We talked a little bit about asset classes already. It seems like multifamily is the most viable and certainly the most popular for Opportunity Zones. That's what I see, at least on my platform, the, the majority of or I'd say at least the plurality of the deals that I see are multifamily deals. Why is multifamily so popular with opportunity zones and why is it more resilient than other asset classes, do you think? Sure. Well, I think the traditional way investors have viewed security as it relates to real assets has really shifted since the COVID-19 pandemic. Essential retail turned out to not be that essential when you can order everything on Amazon. And investment in the tech sector in the last mile distribution and getting goods and services to consumers using apps on your phone has really been disruptive to the traditional business model around essential retail, right? So if you kind of then say, well, what is truly essential? There's nothing more essential than having a roof over your head, right? Everybody wants a place to live. Everybody needs a place to live. And so whether that is a single family home, a home that you own, a home that you rent, or it's multifamily housing, a condo that you own or an apartment that you rent, there's nothing more essential than a roof over your head. And the pandemic proved that out. And I think as we come through this, right, and seeing the resiliency of multifamily, especially as it relates to collections. So the far vast 90 plus percent of renters in the class A space paying their rent on time, even though we're going through this exceptionally tough, unprecedented event in the world, I think really, really shown a bright light on the multifamily sector. 
And it truly is, right? Nothing more essential than a roof over your head. I, just to add there, Jimmy, our economic advisor, Dr. Peter Lenneman, Wharton School Professor of Real Estate, he has written a white paper called The Golden Age of Multifamily Investing. So specifically, where what's going on the need and kind of the, the asset class attributes, we have a chronic undersupply of housing, and specifically in a lot of the opportunity zones that have been undercapitalized, the whole reason why they're designated opportunity zones, housing is by far the biggest need. And that is really where, at least for us, we see the opportunity to be able to build multifamily and additional housing units to help you know, some of the supply constraints that we've been really about 30% underbuilding for decades here in the U.S. Really, Opportunity Zones give you the, the chance to accelerate specifically in those communities and those areas of need for, for really great housing. So it really kind of dovetails super nicely to the whole idea and concept of an Opportunity Zone to build more housing solutions. So, No, that's great. Yeah, I mean, there is a chronic undersupply of housing, as you mentioned, a housing shortage in much of the country, and certainly with the booming demographics in the Southeast, where you guys are focused, I would imagine that that's quite the case as well. It's hard to build too much multifamily these days, it seems, in this country. But I want to talk about your pipeline a little bit now. And when you guys are seeking out multifamily developments, what criteria are you focused on? Yeah, so we're focused on kind of at a macro level geographies or MSAs that have a growing population, right? And that's for obvious reasons. Growing population, more demand for housing. We're also looking at incomes. So, and then diving a little bit deeper into that, what is the employer makeup of the MSA? What is it on a market by market or submarket by submarket level? And so we kind of start looking at a high level where are cities growing, where are jobs growing, where are wages growing, and we start to really narrow down our lens and focus, not just into a city, but into a certain neighborhood, right? And then obviously not every neighborhood is an opportunity zone. So we're looking for those opportunity zones that are in the path of growth. Maybe it's barbelled between two really hot neighborhoods that are growing and we need to fill in the gaps. Or maybe the city's expanding from east to west, and clearly we're a little bit adventurous today, but you can see exactly where things are headed. And so we're looking at it at a very micro level, and I think we're looking for those opportunity zones where in 10 years, people will be shocked that they were ever an opportunity zone, but all they really needed was an investment catalyst, and that's what these opportunity zones can do. For us, it's what they can do for communities, is they can be that catalyst for growth, and then obviously our investors are rewarded through whether it be an attractive land basis, an unbelievable asset that just appreciates in value as the submarket grows around it. There's a really clear path to value enhancement as neighborhoods are lifted, as rents grow, and as pockets of these, these cities that previously have been underserved from an investment perspective get the, the attention that they deserve. Right. When it boils down to kind of on a, on a map, if you will, uh, Jimmy, is Southeastern secondary tertiary markets, non-gateway, just simply for the fact that the gateway markets have generally had lots of capital flowing into them, development capital, um, not mature, but relatively mature. And then we also saw, to, I love which point there about the pathway to growth. Some of the gateway cities went and are going negative or flatlining on their growth, where these secondary and tertiary markets are really the great pathways to growth. So we see these excellent opportunities, but it's not going to be in kind of the marquee cities that you generally would see, uh, you know, big international airports at, if you will. <laughs> really, these secondary markets that have done quite well, but need the capital, need the investment. 
Well, let's talk about specific markets. So which specific cities or markets do you guys like? And can you talk about it in a little bit more detail? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So obviously a market that we have been heavily invested in is Richmond, Virginia and the Scotts Edition neighborhood in Richmond. Scotts Edition is one of the fastest growing neighborhoods in town. And for us, we were drawn to it for all of those things that I mentioned previously. We had an MSA with, we have an MSA with a growing population, growing wages, but more demand for housing than there is supply. We like that equation. And when we study the econometric reports specifically in Scotts Edition, you can really see that through the projected occupancy and rent growth over the next 10 years. And so we love that. There's just more demand than there is supply. If you look at a market like Raleigh, it's a market that we've been really bullish on since my time at Capital Square. I think you, it's widely known, all the great things going on in Raleigh, Apple's H version of HQ2, all of the tech investment, healthcare investment. There's just a ton going on in Raleigh, and the population growth is is absolutely phenomenal. And we've been trying to buy there for our Delaware statutory and non-traded REIT platforms, buying stabilized apartment assets, but the cap rates for us have been too tight. And the investments, you know, didn't make sense. The yields didn't work for our investor base, but we've been really focused on it and studying Raleigh for these last few years. So we're able to leverage that experience to then go and do development, understanding that, hey, our entry cap or the cap rate that we're building to is a really healthy spread relative to where we would be buying an class A asset today. And so kind of looking through that lens and saying, hey, development's going to make a lot of sense here because we can't buy for our stabilized income producing business. We then started to focus on where are the drivers in Raleigh? Obviously, it's the employers. There's the vibrant downtown, the Red Hat amphitheater, the convention center. And we were able to identify an opportunity zone, which is actually kind of catty corner, I would say, to that Red Hat amphitheater is how I would describe it. You're a stone's throw from the convention center, and you're really close to downtown and all that employer base. And so we had this kind of general macro focus on Raleigh, uh, and the opportunity zones and development affords us the ability to kind of leverage our expertise and all the time and energy and effort we've spent over these last few years working on the other side of our business to then deliver to our investors a really good buy at an attractive basis that we're really excited about. Yeah, I'm actually sitting in Raleigh today, Jimmy, so it's kind of interesting. We're doing some work here on this project, but to which point, you know, it's an incredible market. It's just not been viable from an investment perspective for our investor base on the stabilized side. So it's wonderful that the development really can provide that great value and is way more attractive for the investors. And then on top of it, obviously, Witten and his team just focus really tight into opportunity zones that could uh, you know, benefit the investors from the tax side of it as well. So a great uh, kind of long view that ended up with a really successful opportunity to be able to bring to the market. Yeah, that's great. That makes sense. And for any investors listening, what can you tell us specifically about your, I guess, both your closed opportunity zone funds from the past and your current open offerings. And I understand you may not be able to get into much detail regarding specific returns or anything like that, but anything that you can tell me and my listeners, many of whom may be potential investors, what can you share with them about some of these deals you have? Sure. Hey, Whit, do you want to start with the uh, Richmond projects and just kind of give an update and you know where we've, where we've kind of gone? And then mm-hmm. I'll close it out and I'll, I'll be happy to share with you what we've got on the, on the plate right now and the projects we have available. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So we have 
Uh, our first three opportunity zone funds, again, they're single asset funds, so each fund is building one specific project. We like that model because there's all sorts of tests associated with the opportunity zone to make sure that you qualify and continue to qualify. And we like the ease of use and being able to show a clear path to construction, delivery, refinance, sale, et cetera. The first three, we call them Scott's Collection. They're all in the Scott's Edition neighborhood. We are delivering first units on our first deal in December. And so we'll begin taking occupancy the end of December, first part of January. So we're really excited about that. That offering is all these offerings uh, across the first three are closed. Uh, and then we'll start delivering units next year for Scott's two. And then a little bit behind that is Scott's three. And then our, what we call OZ Fund 5 is a joint venture with Graystar. Graystar is one of the largest property developers in the world. And uh, we're building 350 units in Scott's edition. That offering is currently closed and fully raised. And we're in the middle of construction right now. And we'll be delivering units at the end of next year. So the end of 22. Yeah. And with the uh, topping off is coming up for uh, Scott's Fund 5, right? Uh, with, with Graystar. It is. Yeah, next week. Yeah, excited about it. So, Jimmy, I'll give Witt a little bit more credit than he's willing to take here on this, but we were arguably one of the only firms breaking ground in the heart of the pandemic on Opportunity Zone projects. So, thank you to anybody listening who invested in it. I mean, it's really appreciated. But obviously, it was also getting it done and putting the projects together, but then also getting them out of the ground and now delivering. So thrilled to be kind of on the front edge of actually what you know, Opportunity Zones were intended to do, create and provide housing in these communities and deliver it in a pretty quick way. The ones that we are working on now and have opened Opportunity Zone Fund 4, single asset funds, again, as Whit said, this is a apartment project on King Street in Charleston, South Carolina, market we know very well. Again, same has been on our radar for years from the stabilized, the DST side and a market that this was a project that we were able to do a joint venture with a firm called Method Company on a really interesting concept right in the heart of King Street. We're finishing the raise on that. Currently, we've got about $4 million left of kind of a 50-door boutique apartment hotel. King Street is the main thoroughfare, the main street of the peninsula of Charleston. Um, it, uh, Upper King Street, where this is located, has uh, generally been the side of King Street that was undercapitalized and was designated as the Opportunity Zone. One of the uh, legislators who helped create the Opportunity Zone, uh, Tim Scott, is a South Carolina senator. So it's nice to have a project in one of the creators of the Opportunity one of the legislators who, who helped pass the Opportunity Zones. It's nice to have a project there, but it's an incredible opportunity and we're thrilled to be almost done with the raise and we'll break ground in early Q1 next year on that project. Delivery is about 18 months schedule on construction, and then it'll be out in the market with our refinance option sometime around looking at the end of 2024. One other thing just to mention on our single asset, Whit brought this up. We love the clear visibility of single asset. People can really take a look at what we're doing, see clear line of sight of how we're underwriting construction costs, as well as a potential return profile. One thing we do also is have a cash out refinance at stabilization. So ideally cashing out and refinancing, providing both distributions on a quarterly basis, but a, a nice cash out refinance that provides capital for investors to be able to pay their tax bill that is due in 2026 on the deferral. So just a feature we do on all of our funds, that's why we like the single asset fund. 
The other project why I'm here in Raleigh is our Ozone Fund 6. Wit highlighted a little bit of this. It's right at the edge in the heart of the warehouse district, but right at the edge of downtown Raleigh, overlooks the convention center. It has been kind of the side, this, this warehouse side of Raleigh has been undercapitalized for years. There's been some movement, some capital that's been being put into the market. And now with the Opportunity Zone, it's uh, an excellent opportunity for us to build a great project, a 20-story residential tower, 297 unit, and really going to help change the skyline of Raleigh a little bit and provide really great housing solutions for people who are working, live, play in this area. So thrilled to have that. It's a $48 million raise. We will go and start construction April 30th of next year. It is fully entitled. And we're in the final, we started fundraising really in September and have been very successful thus far with about $20 million raised on that. So about $28 million left to raise on that. And, you know, at $100,000 minimums, that's what we provide for our investors. Really gives uh, pretty much anybody the opportunity who are, are looking at opportunity zones to be able to invest in some great projects. That's where we stand today. We've got a couple more coming. I just want to remind everybody, opportunity zones don't sunset for decades. So opportunity zone investments, and specifically for us, real estate development will likely always be a part of what we do with some great tax advantages, not just tied to the specific advantages of this year. Yeah, thank you for that, James. It's important to note that uh, the benefit does not expire at the end of 2021. It still goes for several more years beyond that. The only thing that goes away at the end of 2021 is that 10% basis step up that can reduce the amount of gain that you recognize on the deferred gain that you end up rolling over into a qualified opportunity fund. That's a good distinction to make there. So obviously, you guys have a lot of experience in the opportunity zone space, but you also have a lot of experience in the 1031 DST space as well. You're, you're one of the largest DST sponsors in the United States. So I wanted to pick your brain on some of the differences between DSTs and OZs, and specifically for a high net worth accredited investor, someone listening who's interested in tax-mitigated real estate investing strategies. When should that type of investor consider Delaware Statutory Trust DST-type investment versus an Opportunity Zone investment? You know, real estate gain and 1031 exchange, there's really nothing else like it in the tax code. It provides, if you do it correctly, the opportunity to have tax deferral, uh, really unlike anything else. So people selling real estate, and if they're at all interested in tax deferral, should absolutely pay very close attention, take a look at 1031 exchanges. A little self-serving because that is a big focus of our business, but the reality is is that it also, just from a pure long view about tax deferral and efficiency associated with selling real estate for a gain, 1031 beats an opportunity zone from tax efficiency. What we generally see from these high net worth investors who ask this question, we look at gains and a lot of our investment into opportunity zones are gains from other assets, so gains that don't benefit from the opportunity to have a 1031 exchange or some other tax deferral. So a lot of gains of sales of business, a lot of gains of traditional stock, Bitcoin, you know, really any of the other gains that are available to these high net worth investors, that's where a lot of the opportunities on money is coming from. That said, we've seen more and more people look at gains in real estate and decide to not do a 1031 exchange and to take advantage of the opportunity zone. 
as we pointed out, what that means is they still will pay tax. They won't defer that tax. They will pay tax, obviously, on the deferred amount until 2026. But a 1031, obviously, if facilitated correctly, you can you know defer your tax for really an un- unlimited amount of time. So they're making that decision. They're realizing, hey, I'm going to pay deferred tax in 2026, even though I sold real estate. But what they're doing is they're mainly looking at the actual real estate investment opportunity, right? So they look at our developments, they look at our projects, and they say, wow, you know, I am willing to uh, defer my tax and pay it, but I want to take part in the overall long-term tax benefits of the Opportunity Zone. But really, I like the real estate. I like the project that they're putting together. I like everything associated with that investment. Uh, And that's where we see people taking real estate gains. It's really a great question. We get it all the time, but I do want to highlight tax deferral, really if done correctly and definitely from 1031, only available to real estate gains. And then really any gain should be looked at for opportunity zones, inclusive of people uh, looking at the real estate for opportunity zones. Um, uh, Whit, you got anything you want to add there? I mean, that's pretty much where it, it kind of comes down to for most of our investors. Yeah, I think it's a great summary. And for real estate gains, you have some folks like the 1031 and some folks are looking for the the extra juice that you get from a development return. Oh, I think that's great. I think that's a great explainer. Uh, Makes perfect sense to me. I hope that's helpful to anyone who may have had that question. We mentioned a while ago that Opportunity Zones are going to be around for many years to come, at least through the end of 2026, with the possibility of being able to invest in a qualified opportunity fund through much of 2027 still. And that's, um, it's only set to expire if it doesn't potentially get extended by Congress at some point. And fingers crossed that it will be at some point. But at the very least, you'll still have until part of 2027 to invest in funds. So with a few years left in the program, I should say several years left in the program, what do you think the future of Opportunity Zones will be like? Any predictions? I can go on the capital side. I think the notoriety, even this podcast, what you're doing, Jimmy, and getting that notoriety of what Opportunity Zones really are, the benefits, and then you know, great programs coming out. I think we're going to see a continued acceleration from the investor base as to, you know, maybe I need to look at this, right? And that visibility will likely then just keep that capital investment going to the undercapitalized communities for quite a while and really achieving the goals of the overall legislation. So I see that accelerating over the next couple of years. Wait, maybe uh, real estate side, I'll let him answer on that. Yeah, I think we'll continue to see investments into opportunity zones that have already seen a significant amount of investment. So I think neighborhoods like Scott's Edition, where we've been very active, will continue to grow. But I also think over these next couple of years, as the first OZ investments will start returning capital through refinances and lease up and start proving out the concept, I think we will start seeing some of the really, truly more underserved OZ designations or areas. I think we'll start seeing investment there as well. That's great. Well, I I hope you're right. I predict much the same. It's been a pleasure speaking with both of you today. I think we're going to wrap up here shortly. But before we go, where can our listeners go to learn more about the two of you and Capital Square? Yeah, absolutely. Capital Square 1031.com, you know, the roots of our company. uh, But that's our website, Capital Square 1031.com. On there, we have all of our projects that we have, both Opportunity Zone as well as 1031 Exchange. A lot of history about us as a company, our entire portfolio is listed there as well. All of our offerings have my direct cell phone number, Lewis Rogers, our founder, owner, CEO, his direct cell phone number, and in all of the development and real estate uh, stuff, you see with cell phone number as well, my email as well, but yeah, my phone number 202-615-0442. 
anybody can call me. We've got a great form on our website. So as you're perusing what we have, the pictures, the plans, the construction cameras, uh, which is actually really cool. We have nice time-lapse construction cameras on our website. There's also a great form, contact information for anybody at the company. Team members follow up within 24 hours or less. So feel free, anybody, reach out directly to us. That's fantastic. Well, you guys don't hide. You make it easy to find all of you. And I'll be sure to link to all of your websites and phone numbers and email addresses on the show notes page. Uh, for our listeners out there, as always, I will have show notes for today's episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. And you can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links and phone numbers to all of the resources that Wit, James, and I discussed on today's show. Witt and James, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Thanks again, Jimmy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit opportunitydb.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund Investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.